Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us on this Thursday. Coming up on the program today, talking more about the travel restrictions that we are hoping to get more clarification on tomorrow. We're going to check in with the mayor of Penticton in just a moment. Also talking about paid sick leave. A lot of people were hoping that that would have been more of a focus in the B.C. budget. Is it a missed opportunity? Richard Zussman also asked the prime minister about this yesterday. We are going to check in with the B.C. Federation of Labour for their take on on that. Also going to talk about the emerging calls, the growing number of calls for the federal government to do something about international travel and perhaps ban flights, at least for a certain period of time, from areas with higher cases of COVID-19. We'll talk about that after the 1.30 news. And the 1 o'clock news conference today, that is the news conference with Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix. We will carry that live right here on the program. Right now, though, let Let's check in with John Vasilaki, the mayor of Penticton. John, Mayor of Vasilaki, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Joe. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, wanted to talk to you today mostly about this idea of roadblocks. Uh, we know that there is something, uh, some clarification going to be announced tomorrow. Uh, we've already heard from uh, Mike Farnworth uh, that we're not talking about sporadic road checks throughout the province, but we could see uh, something that would see road checks, say, on Highway 1 as people head out of Metro Vancouver. Perhaps those would be people on the road to visit Penticton. What are your thoughts on this idea? Um, as you know, Jill, uh, Penticton de- depends very uh, greatly on tourism. Uh, in order for our small business to survive, uh, they need the summer business in order to survive over the winter. As you know, the winter isn't as uh, as busy as it is in the summertime, and we depend on those external dollars coming into our community in order for the municipality to uh, to survive. And by a municipality, I'm talking about the residents uh, and the businesses in, in the, uh, in the, not only in Penticton, but the whole Okanagan Valley. Uh, so are you still encouraging people then as far as tourists or maybe people that might have second properties to visit Penticton? Um, I haven't gone that far. But I too believe in uh, short um, pain is uh, is uh, for longer uh, gain is appropriate at this time. We figure that um, this time this year COVID would have been over and done with, but unfortunately it continues to to uh, go forward rather than backwards. Uh, so I, I'd like I don't I wouldn't want to see another year of uh, COVID being around. Uh, our province or the world as far as that goes. So we we have to take certain steps in order to slow it down or get rid of it altogether as soon as possible. Uh, are you still noticing uh, tourists, people coming into Penticton, even now with the recommendation? It's not a, a public health order at this point, but we have had the recommendation for some time now uh, to not do that. Um, yeah, I, I see a lot of uh, people from out of town here. I see uh, license plates from Alberta um, and other parts of, uh, of Canada. Perhaps those people were here over the, the winter months uh, because of the harsh windows out east, um, uh, hard weather out east. Um, but, you know, there there's still uh, a lot of people around that don't uh, live here uh, uh, year-round, you know, so I... I I think we do, and it helps out our businesses. I can see that the restaurants that do have courtyards, they're full every day. Uh, they're, um, 
most of the day they're full. Unfortunately, they have to close early, um, but they're they're still in business and, and they're doing quite well. Uh, so are you in favor then of this idea of perhaps uh, a police road check or some kind of road check for people leaving Metro Vancouver uh, that are headed your way for recreational travel to stop them? Um, I'm not really in favor of police doing that type of work. They have more important um, things that they should be looking after, like crime, and we have a lot of crime um, in the valley, uh, and I'd rather they look after that than checking to see where the folks that are coming to this area are from. Uh, so is it the checks, though, that you're opposed to, or you'd be okay with them then if, if somebody else, some other authority was doing it? Yeah, if some other authority was doing it, it would be much better and more appropriate uh, to the public, because uh, when they're stopped by the, by the police, it, it's they get irritated, uh, so I believe that other, uh, like bylaw people or certain other type of um, groups of people did that work rather than the police. Yeah, I would be in favor of that. And you mentioned, too, kind of the short-term pain for, for longer-term yes. gain and the hope then being that we would be open up to interprovincial travel at least by the summertime. Uh, what, would the, what would it be like in Penticton if that doesn't happen, if we don't have it opened up to people moving around, at least moving around B.C.? It would be very unfortunate uh, for, for the businesses uh, in our community um, and the whole province as a whole. Um, like I said, we depend in the summer uh, tourism business that comes to uh, to uh, to our towns in order for the business to survive over the winter and the last year or so has been devastating uh, for most businesses and they're hanging by by a string at, uh, trying to hold not to declare bankruptcy and to stay in business as long as possible so I really feel uh, for those folks uh, and those that are less fortunate than ourselves um, to to cope with what's happening at the present time. All right. Uh, we're going to, again, get more information, we hope, about what exactly yeah. is going to be happening, uh, getting that information tomorrow. Uh, Mayor, I wanted to ask you, uh, just before I let you go as well, the last time you were on the program, we were talking about the homeless shelter, the emergency center uh, in Penticton, and the fight going on between uh, Penticton and the Attorney General in this province. Uh, I understand now uh, that uh, Penticton is ready to go ahead uh, to sue the province over that. What is the state of what's happening there? Well, that, that will be the last resort if, um, in other words, going to, to court will be our last resort. Um, what we're hoping is that BC Housing and Minister of Housing, um, Minister Eby, uh, comes forward and negotiates with us like we want uh, to do and to cooperate and respect uh, our rights as a municipality uh, to uh, to make sure that um, we were um, put into office uh, legitimately by the public of the city of Penticton, like every other municipality in the province, and we want to be respected, and our people want to be respected as to the, the, the situation at hand and the decisions that our city councils make on behalf of, of the public and how we're trying to protect um, and take care of our public. Uh, the estimation from uh, the city is that legal action could range anywhere from two hundred to three hundred thousand uh, dollars. Do you think the residents of Penticton are, are behind that, or would like to see their tax dollars spent in that way? 
we had over 50% of the public agreeing with, with that position that city council has taken. But like I said, that's going to be our last resort. Uh, and we're still a long ways away from that. Uh, we're still negotiating. Um, and I just hope that we can come to terms uh, with the provincial government, especially with Minister Eby and uh, the Premier. The, the public was in favor of 78% of the public vote in favor that we should approach the Premier and he should uh, step in and interfere uh, with the Minister as to what's happening uh, so that we can solve this problem and, and get to to the root of the problem, which is we have to come up with a solution, a long-term solution, not short-term. Like at the present time, what they're doing is going from uh, six months here, six months there, and moving things around. We want a permanent uh, solution to a permanent location, in, in the right location in our community. All right. So we will follow up with you for sure. Mayor Vasilaki, thanks so much for joining us, for taking some time with us today. Thank you very much for having me. Federal government does have a program. You're eligible if you're sick with COVID-19 or may have COVID-19, are advised to self-isolate due to COVID, or have underlying health conditions putting you at greater risk of getting the virus. But there's gaps. A worker is only eligible if they work more than half the shifts in a Monday to Sunday week. They can only receive up to $450 a week after tax, and the payments are often delayed. That was Richard Zussman, part of his report talking about sick pay and the lack of any kind of focus on sick pay paid leave in the BC budget on Tuesday. And he talked about it as well with the Prime Minister in his uh, one-on-one interview with Justin Trudeau yesterday. And a lot of people are calling and renewing those calls for the BC government to bring in a paid sick leave policy uh, after, again, there was no clear policy in the BC budget. Let's bring in Laird Kronk, the President of the BC Federation of Labour, to talk more about this. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Jill. Good afternoon. Were you expecting or hoping that this would have been more of a focus or a focus of the BC budget? Well, I mean, you know, to be clear, we've been we've been uh, putting forward the case for actual uh, paid sick leave, not like the shortcomings of the federal program, but a true universal paid sick leave since the beginning of COVID for some 13 months. So, yes, we're looking everywhere for uh, paid sick leave to come in, whether it was federal, whether it was provincial. I mean, it's become clear, and I'm on the record uh, for weeks and weeks saying that I lost confidence in the federal government's ability to change the shortcomings of their program. So I wasn't surprised that the federal budget didn't have changes in it. I was hoping the provincial budget would. It does not. But I remain undeterred. I'll continue to make the case that it's still not too late. Uh, it's urgent. We need it now. Do you know how many workers there are in BC who currently don't have paid sick leave through their employer that would that are are more in that situation where they uh, really do need it? Yeah, great question. So let's set aside the federal program with its shortcomings. In in British Columbia, we know that more than fifty percent of workers have no paid sick uh, provisions at all, and we know that when you get to a wage of thirty thousand dollars and less, like minimum wage workers, frontline workers, if you will, at grocery stores, uh, working in places where they get boxes ready to be shipped to people, et cetera, uh, meat packing plants. These are low-wage workers often. That number rises to the high 80%, almost 90% of those workers have no paid sick provisions at all. 
And we have seen outbreaks in places like that. And certainly we've seen transmission and we have seen people going to work sick in places like you've just explained uh, those very scenarios. We have. I mean, the data shows it. the uh, WorkSafe or WCB data shows that there are claims that have been approved, almost 3000 of them for transmission in the workplace. Uh, we've heard it from the PHO. We've seen it in the media. There's just no doubt that there have been folks who in the morning, you know, the example would be or in the morning, you have sort of a scratchy throat. You're like, oh, I just don't feel right. But they make a low wage. They're worried about paying the bills, paying the rent. Uh, and they have this untenable decision. Do I stay home and find out what it is? Or do I hope it's seasonal allergies that I had last year and I go to work? This is exactly the moment that we're trying to take that untenable decision away and say, Stay home, do the right thing. Your wages will be continuing, um, and then you can check and see and not take possibly COVID-19 into the workplace. And when you say a universal system of sick pay, uh, do you want to see it taken out of the employers, uh, the, the, I guess it would be the high 40% of employers that do cover off, do whether it's two weeks of sick leave or whatever it is in that particular deal, do you want it taken out of there and become a government program? Or when you're talking universal, is it for the 50 plus percent that currently don't have it? Yeah, another great question. So during COVID, what we've put to the government both federally and now provincially, is we'd like to see a universal program, meaning that any worker that wakes up with symptoms in the morning or in the afternoon, if they work the night shift, can stay home, know that they get their regular wage. Uh, We set up to 10 days of leave for COVID-related symptoms. And then the employer who pays that wage, obviously that's an investment for them to make sure the worker doesn't come to work sick and doesn't worry about the bills and that untenable decision we talked about. What we have said in a very practical way is recognizing Some employers, many employers have been really dramatically affected by COVID-19 is that the government would backstop those employers up to 75% reimbursement of those wages when the employer could show the government that they've been impacted by COVID. And I have to say, Jill, there are many employers who have not been dramatically affected by COVID, in fact, have been doing quite well. So for them, it would be an investment in the health and safety of their workers and making sure their workplace didn't have three infections and get shut down, for example. It's a common sense process. For those that are hurting, there would be government uh, uh, assistance in that, kind of like the federal government's 75% wage subsidy program that they had, very similar to that. Uh, so would it continue then, or how would you see something like, like that continuing? And I'm, I'm, I'm still very optimistic that we will get to a point where we're not in mm-hmm. a worldwide pandemic. How does it look after the pandemic? Well, I think after the pandemic, uh, it's, it's never made sense for workers to have this decision to go to work sick, whether it's the flu or whatever it is. Once we're actually officially, whatever that looks like, through the COVID-19 pandemic, and I hope that's as soon as it can be, then what we're talking to the government about is an employment standards provision. And I'd liken it to almost like a holiday pay or stat pay provision, where workers in the future post-COVID would accrue a little bit of sick pay on every check, kind of like you do with holiday pay or stat pay. And then, you know, over the year, you build that up. You would have the ability to use that when you had the flu, for example, so you don't infect all of the other workers in the workforce. That would be the long-term piece under the Employment Standards Act. But during COVID, it's about making sure workers have their pay covered when they have these symptoms. I mean, number one, we're trying to save lives. We're trying to save the economy. Let's make sure workers have the tools to be able to stay home and not worry about the rent, groceries, paying for their children's 
uh, you know, clothing and food, etc. That's what we're trying to solve right now today. Uh, Doug Ford in Ontario uh, had uh, a bit of a, a mea culpa moment. He apologized uh, for uh, some of the rollout in that province and made a promise for paid sick leave. Uh, the Prime Minister uh, seems to be leaving it with the provinces, saying the provinces need to figure this out. So what would you like to see happen in the short term in B.C.? Well, I'd like to see in British Columbia, look, I I was so proud of our government here when they um, were amongst the leaders in the country to bring in provisions. They're doing it right now in the legislature this week um, that say any worker who gets, you know, their time comes up to get vaccinated. If that's during work time, because you don't control when that happens necessarily, you don't lose pay to make sure workers don't face that untenable decision in order to get their vaccine. That was such an important like life-saving thing that this government is doing. I'd like to see them pivot and do the same thing with sick pay right now, bring something in akin to what we're talking about so workers don't face this untenable decision. Let's put a circuit breaker inside the circuit breaker, if you will, and make sure workers don't face this difficult decision. Make sure they stay home and don't go to work. Don't spread it to other workers who then spread it to their families and communities. Keep businesses operating. Keep workers safe. All right, we'll leave it there. Laird Krong, thanks so much for joining us today. Pleasure, Jill. Stay safe. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. Well, some uh, emerging news from the federal government. We've now uh, seen that MPs would like uh, or or have adopted a motion, that is, saying that Canada should stop flights, uh, particularly international flights, from COVID-19 hotspots. This was a unanimous motion and saying that these outbreaks in countries where outbreaks are raging, uh, they should not still have flights coming in into Canada. This was a motion from the Bloc Québécois this afternoon, again, calling for flights carrying non-essential travellers from certain countries, such as India and Brazil, to be barred. It's something the Prime Minister has been asked about the past few days and really hasn't given a concrete answer, certainly hasn't said that it is something that Canada is going to do. Uh, joining me now to talk a bit more about this and what we're seeing in hospitals is uh, Dr. Navdeep Grewal, emergency physician at Delta Hospital. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Thank you for having me, Jill. What are your thoughts on this and now with this development that MPs are saying, yes, Canada should stop flights from countries where COVID-19 is raging? I, I think this is something that, you know, probably should have been done all along. And I think, unfortunately, the horse is out of the barn now. We're already seeing evidence that there's community transmission of variants, whether they be the variant that was originally found in the UK or the variant originally found in Brazil, and now the variant that was originally found in India. So um, it helps. It certainly helps to um, stop travel from those countries um, because it prevents more cases from coming in. But I think the fact that we've already found some cases locally here in BC and in Quebec means that uh, in addition to... um, active surveillance. We just need to be on our guard all the time that we don't um, keep transmitting variants, whether they're the original uh, version of the virus or other variants that are still to come. And in the case of NBC, I think it was announced yesterday that we've had 39 cases or or around that number in BC. Does that also show then that even with the protocols that are in place with quarantining and, and, and when people fly into arrive in Canada, they are supposed to quarantine that that's not working if we do have 39 cases? 
you could certainly draw that conclusion, yes. it's Right now, the quarantine period is three days, and the idea is that somebody must get tested within three days before they get on a plane um, to come to Canada and then isolate for three days at a hotel, get tested again, um, and then they get to go free in the community. But what's happening is that uh, sometimes people are paying a fine to avoid the quarantine. At other times, they may not become positive um, with COVID and it may not develop the symptoms or may not develop the seropositivity that results in a positive test until that, you know, up to six day mark has passed. And so it looks like the quarantine period that we currently have, which is um, not very well enforced, um, also is not enough to prevent these variants from escaping into our community. Um, I know that you also sit on the South Asian COVID-19 task force. Uh, I I think I read as well that you have family uh, in parts uh, of India and that part of the world. Uh, How does that, uh, that must give you a much different perspective on what you're seeing not only here on the ground and as your role in an emergency department, but also what's happening in other countries uh, that are seeing these high rates? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, initially here in Canada, um, a lot of the South Asian community was wondering why there was such a fuss here in Canada when it appeared that in India um, there weren't that many cases and it wasn't that big of a deal, so-called, in India because they would see, um, you know, videos and photographs of their family, um, you know, farmers protest, uh, people milling about in India. And so they thought that it wasn't such a big deal. And then what happened was with that initial first wave not being as bad, um, you know, the seriousness of it was not really evident. But now as a result, this huge second wave that's occurring in India with, you know, positivity rates as high as like, for example, 31% in Delhi in the last couple of 24 hours is just astounding. And it's really hitting home. Um, I actually did um, have a chance to uh, chat by WhatsApp with some relatives that live in Delhi. And they said they've just been hunkering down. They live in an apartment and they are just, uh, you know, working from home um, and just trying to save it as safe as possible. Well, hopefully the variants around them and the, and the virus um, around them is not going to impact them too much. Uh, Can we learn from that as well? I know Dr. Howard New was asked earlier today uh, about this particular variant, the B1617, asking, is it more transmissible? Is it more, uh, is it, does it bring a higher level of sickness? Is it more intolerant or or is the vaccine not as effective uh, when dealing with this? Do we know the answers to those questions? No, it's it's too early to tell. As with the other variants that we're slowly learning about, you know, for example, the B117 or the P1, we know that the vaccine is likely to have some level of protection. It certainly should protect us against severe illness or death, which is the ultimate outcome that we want to see. So in the meantime, I think all we can do is continue to study it. But I think what's lost in all this is the fact that the same um, things that we've been doing all along should work against this variant as well. And that is masking, physical distancing, and making sure that when we are eligible to get the vaccine that we get it. I think all those things will help to provide extra layers of protection that will prevent us from having to worry so much about this variant. And even the fact that it's called, you know, has a scary name called double mutant, it doesn't make it any more dangerous than any of the variants we've seen so far. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because when I first saw that too, the, that is a name that I think people will make the, the connection that it sounds much, much worse. But then we also hear uh, from Dr. Henry and some other health officials that uh, calling it uh, a variant of, of not a variant of concern, but a variant of interest, which then sounds much less. And I think that could be confusing as well. Mm-hmm. I think the reason that they're calling it a variant of interest is because it's still being studied and yet and we don't know at this time whether it will become a variant of concern, which, as you rightly said, implies that either it's more easily transmissible or it's more lethal. And we just don't have that data yet.
Uh, you mentioned as well that uh, it might be a bit late, seeing as we already have this variant in BC. We have it in Quebec uh, that, to, to shut down flights. Uh, but other people look at that, I, and the British Columbians look at that saying, well, we're bracing for tomorrow. We're going to find out more about travel within BC. Why not just shut them down, even if it's for a two-week, a three-week, four-week period and, and stop any more transmission? Mm-hmm. I would certainly support that. And I think that it's seeming more and more likely that the federal government is you know, at least looking at that, if not hopefully um, heading that way soon. Uh, just until you know, we all learn more about this virus, we learn more about its transmissibility, length of incubation. Um, and then in the meantime, I think it would behoove us to actually enforce the quarantine regulations and then consider lengthening the uh, mandatory quarantine. Uh, and, and what would you like to see or if there what changes do you think would be necessary for those quarantine regulations? Uh, well, similar to other jurisdictions, like, for example, Australia, um, other countries in the world, 10 to 14 days, I think, is probably standard. Uh, certainly, I think three days is not enough, again, given the fact that many people may not uh, become uh, positive on their swabs until after they are released from mandatory quarantine. And sometimes it's hard to get hold of people after they leave. And so it's just an easier task if um, we are all, um, you know, making sure that we are um, observing for variants and checking for variants and people that have come from other countries. Uh, I wanted to ask you as well, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but it was just announced in the briefing from the health minister, Adrian Dix, uh, announcing that for the next two weeks at nine hospitals in Fraser Health and in Vancouver Coastal Health, uh, they are going to stop all uh, elective surgeries. They're going to urgent and emergency surgeries only. Um, what are your thoughts on that and the, and the kind of impact that that could have? I think that it is a necessary um, evil at this point. Uh, Critical care staff are burning out. They've been working hard for months and months, and they need some relief. Uh, So people that are able to help them, people that have some training in critical care, they need to be um, temporarily diverted from their regular jobs and moved into ICUs. Um, You know, hopefully we have enough people on a voluntary basis to do this for now, but it it is a necessary um, thing to do to make sure that we don't Um, overwhelm our critical care staff that we currently have because it's just going to get worse before it starts getting better. All right, Dr. Grayall, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us and talking with us about this. You're welcome. Thank you. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.